robot question asked, what's the demo? Well, it, it can be hard. Like if you said, hey, what's the demo? The default answer from some engineers would be like, there's no way I can demo this. It's like, well, it's not true. Like you could demo, what could you demo? How do you know it works? Well, I look at this graph. Okay, that's a demo. What's the graph mean? Well, it means this. Okay, let's show that to the company and explain it. Um, and so I think it's it's important to kind of like pull that to some to some degree. And I think from a lot of engineers, it's 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 not the obvious thing to do. I think a lot of engineers are like no one cares about this. Welcome to Building Better Games, where we dive into what matters most in game development, leaders, and culture. Your hosts are Aaron Smith and Benjamin Carsage. Aaron and Ben are two veteran game industry leaders who have served a global audience of gamers and want to change how games are made. Welcome back, everybody, to Building Better Games. I'm super excited about today because uh, I get to bring on an old friend, and colleague, uh, Jonathan McCaffrey, also colloquially known as JMac, as we were just discussing earlier. Um, and uh, by his uh, account, you can call him either. So that's what, whatever strikes your fancy. Um, and one of the things, there's many things I, I just like adore about this man, but one of them is that he is one of the rare breeds of individuals who is a highly talented product thinker and engineer. And so I think for some time, I've been really excited to bring him on and just hear his take on a bunch of stuff uh, when it comes to leadership, game development, and uh, maybe some more that I'm not even thinking about right now that'll just come up emergently. So real quick, I'm going to kick it over to you, um, John, and, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, totally. So I'm excited to be here. Um, I was I worked at Riot for a long time. I worked with you folks. Um, I was there for about 10 years, mostly in engineering. I did stuff for League of Legends. I also worked on the platform team and some other stuff like that. Um, I went, I've actually worked on things that are not a video game as well, and I've had an interesting perspective there. Uh, I was at a company for a year that got acquired by Ticketmaster, um, and currently I'm leading engineering at a video game startup here in LA called Elodie Games. And it's a bunch of folks uh, from Riot, a couple of folks from Blizzard and uh, Bioware. So, you know, we're making a video game. The dream team. We're hoping. Cool. So uh, I want to kick this off. What is something you see as controversial in the video game industry today? That's a good question. You know, I think one of my perspectives is I didn't start my career in the industry in video games. You know, I started in software, I worked at an enterprise software company before I worked on a video game, and then I've worked on companies, you know, between uh, Riot and, you know, where I'm working now that haven't been video games. And so I've seen that diversity. This is probably not surprising as a take to anybody, but our industry is fairly siloed in a lot of ways. And we look at our way of doing things and we think it's, you know, extremely special or unique. And in some ways it is. And I think there are other ways where it's not. And you know, I think video games leads the way in some things, and I think we lag behind in others. And I look at process and product and how we think about, you know, priority frameworks and, and all kinds of things that, you know, other teams and other industries, you know, they have different ways to do it, and some of those ways are better. 
I'm trying to do some of this at Elodie is we bring in folks from, from outside the industry onto our teams where we can. And I think those perspectives hopefully mix some of that stuff in. You know, we hired a UI architect over here from Netflix and it's been great because A, they love video games, but they haven't had the chance to work on video games, but they've worked in the culture of Netflix and the things they do there. And that's going to be different than some of the things that we're doing, you know, as a, like a video game production minded team. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they're asking a lot of good questions and pushing back on some things. And I think that kind of that play is is super valuable in the team. And so I'm always looking for ways to bring in folks from outside the industry to bring perspective. Mm. I want to ask you, do you and, and uh, <laughs> like light a little bit of a fire under this, because I think it's interesting what you're saying. Do you think that what do you think drives that attitude in games? Do you think that there's maybe a little bit of ego there or perhaps a little bit of like, well, they don't really understand because we're artistic. Like, what what do you think it is? It's a good question. I think there's different answers. And so the first one, I'll, the first lens I'll look at that through is the is a, is a technology lens. Uh, here's an anecdote. I, I went and talked to some folks over at a game studio when I was interviewing for different jobs before I went and worked at the ticket company that got acquired. And there was a, co- a book on the coffee table about making a video game. And so it's like in C++. So I opened the book and the first chapter is about making a string library. And so this is like, you're going to make a video game. So step one, make your whole library for everything from scratch. And I think that's like a cult, that's a cultural idea that's, that is kind of ingrained. I mean, there's a, a reference that like a textbook that, you know, courses use called uh, uh, game engine architecture. And it's the same thing. You open the book and the first couple chapters are about you know, these kind of things that are very much like building everything from scratch. Like you're starting from a blank page. Mm. And I think that's just, that's a technology lens, but that lens permeates. If I'm starting from a blank page, I'm not going to bring something from outside. I'm not going to, and and, this, and the technology has made it historically difficult to do that. Um, because once you start building all your own libraries, now the things you want to bring in from the outside don't use those libraries. And so that creates an incompatibility that makes it often just easier to like do it yourself. Um, and I think that translates into other areas. Interesting. So, so there's a, there's almost a naivete there when it comes to practical game development. Yeah, and I think it's just, you know, and some of it's historical. I mean, you know, nowadays yeah. a lot of teams are building on, you know, Unreal and Unity and established engines. And so some of this is going, you know, is changing a little bit. But a lot of game projects, I mean, start with a blank page. And a lot of, and you see even companies out there still doing that. I think that, even when the technology changes, I think there's a culture there that is that. There's like the assumption that you always will start from a blank page. And and actually the uh, the behaviors that'll just naturally arise from those assumptions too. Yeah. And I think that, I, I get that's what you're poking at, right? Is this idea of you shouldn't, if you have to do that, great, but do you walk in making that assumption on day one? Yeah, exactly. And I think, and, and sometimes... You know, obviously, in, in some of these cases, there's valid technical reasons to do that. But I, my impression is that sometimes this uh, this culture is goes beyond like those valid technical reasons and goes to just like a default stance of everything. Yeah, I mean, certainly we see that in production too, right? Plan everything up, have your gigantic Gantt chart on the whole wall that goes like three years into the future. You know, you're you're planning somehow. You think you can plan an engineer's tasks for November 2023, right? Yeah, and even like methodology-wise, you know, uh, I do see there's sometimes a tendency to homebrew methodologies versus find established methodologies. Um, I read a book recently uh, entitled Accelerate, uh, 
which yeah. is a really good book, and it's it's basically a research paper on you know DevOps. Mm-hmm. And it's like there's a lot of kind of mythologies in the space. Here's the research paper that says, you know, what data, what works and what doesn't work. And it's like there's not a lot of that for things. You know, you think about practices that we do and you're like, how much of this is research backed and how much of it is just kind of like <laughs> mythological? And maybe it's good sounding, but like uh, this book had a great anecdote where they said change advisory boards are contraindicated to the success so it's like you're like okay having a change advisory board not only does it not help it actually is a negative indicator of success and you're like that seems counterintuitive but they're not and they don't you know they're just doing surveys and being like here's the data you know mm-hmm. um and so <laughs> intuition is in everything and i think that uh you know a lot of the stuff as you guys well know is not backed by anything except habit right tradition well, I, I can say I know a lot of people that will be sad to let go of the change advisory board. It's a big hit in most of the companies <laughs> that I've worked for. So. How will morale recover? <laughs> uh, there, it's, I've actually, I, I read that book some number of years ago, and I remember being, I think, related to what you were talking about. They sort of called out the myth of the dichotomy between we can either like build fast or, or we can build clean, basically. Yeah, yes. And sort of pointing out that actually what we see in technology companies across the board is that the ones that build the fastest also definitionally have to build the cleanest. Yes. And anybody who's stuck in the world where they're like, well, we it has to be hacked together to go fast, they end up like basically dying on their, their grave of tech debt, right? Mm-hmm. And anybody who's just like, it has to be nothing but clean and don't worry about moving until it is perfectly like they end up dying on a perfect architecture with nothing that does anything. Yeah, you know, it's funny, in a video game, one of the things I can tell you is change is the absolute, right? You know there's gonna be change. Other things you may not know. There may be less confidence on the gameplay mechanics or the UI or some of the systems we're building, but we can definitely see that change will happen. We will change Mm -hmm. this now, we'll change it later. And even if we think it's good, we'll probably change it as well. So I think you kind of want to build for making change easy to do. And if you can do that, I think that is a recipe for success because you can iterate your way to a good product if you can iterate. Yeah, It's not the only path to success, but I believe it's a path to success and it's a, a relatively risk managed path of success. So, you know, and video games are a place where the product opportunities are often nuanced. How can you say, for example, that having the game play this way and having these features definitely will be the formula to success? Most teams don't have that confidence. So it's like, if we can change it easily, then we'll figure it out. Well, I'll I'll be as bold as to say, because I've seen many different versions of this now, that often when they do have the confidence, they're wrong. It can be wrong, yeah. And actually, one one of the things that that scares me a little bit is when I see a company that is struggling with that, like their identity and how they work in contrast to the level of uncertainty that they're dealing with. And instead of sort of accepting that change is absolute, they're actually looking for that leader who's going to be like, no, here is the correct plan. Yeah. Like, and once they find that, they're like, oh God, finally we found somebody <laughs> who has the correct plan. And you look at it and you're like, I've done this a couple of times. This is not going to work. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he seems really confident though. Yeah. I can imagine a world where that 
does work out like you do have you know the amazing vision and you can execute it and it's great um it's just like you know, a lot e it's a lot easier for me to imagine a world where we build some strong foundations we build a way to iterate and we make change easy for the team and we focus on that and then we iterate our way i don't know but for, yeah. from an engineering standpoint i'm like hey let's let's make it so that we can you know deliver Right. Well, and you're you're maximizing uh, learning effectively by being able to iterate. If you build things in in a way that, like, we tried this and it was a big, it seemed like a big change, but we've actually built in such a way that it's fairly easy for us to pivot away from it. Suddenly, the cost to learn is very low, and when the cost to learn is very low, you just open up space for people to try things. Like Aaron and I have described it as an odds game. When you go the the uh, leader who has all the answers route, you're playing the odds game, right? Like, and it's a worse odds game than the iterative, let's try to figure it out, potentially in collaboration with our audience, or you're playing the odds game and, and like, it's a bad, it's a much worse bet. Yeah. Without actually much more of a payoff on the other end. Like the payoff of a successful game might be very similar in both cases, but like your odds of succeeding uh, with, the, with the brilliant leader who knows all the answers is, is lower. So I, I wanted to ask you, and this is a tangenting a bit, you are faced as an engineering, as the engineering leader at that startup, right? With the, okay, how do we move fast and clean together? Mm -hmm. And I, I know that has got to be like a tough conversation that emerges time and time again of like, while well, we're still developing a game and we have deadlines and like we have, you know, shareholders or investors that want things at particular moments, simultaneously recognizing that if I go too far down the fast path without going far enough down the clean path, we're going to end up like in a hole we can't dig our way out of. What's your perspective? It's a good question. I think um, one of the things I realized probably a different, you know, a riot would take a different stance and a blizzard would take a different stance. But when you're at a 30, 40, 50 person company, the stance we've taken, I think the, the smart stance is try not to build as much as you can. I mean, I think that's the first place mm -hmm. because if you can get something that someone else has already built, it's probably not hacked together, you know? Um, and so that influenced a lot of decisions. As an example, we use Amazon for a lot of our things. We use a tool that they have called GameLift. And GameLift manages the hosting of servers. It manages knowing where every player is, if they're in a game or not, which games are open, what the state of those games are. And that's just an example of a product that, you know, a, a, a larger company like a Blizzard or a Riot would have a team of people building. We're able to find a thing like this that we can just use. And then we don't have to build it, which means we don't have to decide if we are hacking it together or not. We're just going right. to use this thing. The mindset we've taken a lot is let's make the product and worry less about those costs. You know, we can opt like if optimizing costs becomes a profitable venture, then we can do that. But it's not when you don't have any players. So mm -hmm. uh, let's not <laughs> optimize it uh, and spend the time to get some players. And if they love it and there's a lot of them and then that creates cost problems. And it's like, let's spend some time to fix that. You know, it's like that's a uh, it's a luxury to be able to optimize that and to focus on that that we don't have. And so. Because of it, I take it a mindset, which is like, let's try to build the fewest things we can, which is funny when you're using something like Unreal because it has so many things. So a lot of it's just like figuring out what it has. Mm. It's terribly documented. So you're like, let me literally you'll spend engineering resources just like learning about how things work and like teaching people how to use them. 
And that's an equal investment to building something, you know, a better investment. Mm. So, you know, we're all cracking a smile a little bit as you walk through this because it's one of those things, again, that sounds so obvious, but sound, it, it also seems unorthodox, you know, uh, in our industry. What do you think is the dissonance there? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it's historical, like the products haven't always been good. Hmm. Or the products haven't always been good for video games. I mean, I think a valid criticism in the space could be, hey, it works for mobile apps, but it doesn't work for video games. You know, a lot of tools that work for other places have not historically worked for video games and still don't work. But I think there is a growing number of, you know, mid-sized studios out there because the tools are getting to a place where they're pretty good. And, and the companies making those tools like Epic, like Amazon, like Microsoft and Google realize that the size of the video game segment are and are actively investing. Uh, I think if you were, you know, 10 years ago or something and you try to do this, you'd find issues. And if you aren't, if, and if that's your only reference and you're coming and you're doing something new today, you may say, hey, I've seen in the past where this, wasn't, this hasn't worked, so I'm going to take that lesson and apply it here and try to do this stuff ourselves. And that, my, my advice to that person would be, look, at, look again, because I think there are some, there's some really compelling products out there that make these problems easier. And, you know, the forcing function of being a small team uh, is you is you can just you, you don't have you like you don't have the luxury of like building it all mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Let's let's go pivot into this idea um, that I mentioned earlier, which is this bridge between product and engineering. The relationship between those two things is something that's also rapidly evolving. I think it's really interesting. I mean, like, you know, now you have product managers, which is like actually an enterprise, like even something that's probably only like about 10 or 15 years old, right? Uh, As like a mainstream concept, I mean, and it actually in video games, you don't, that that's actually more opaque, like what that is. Like, I feel like um, game companies who have leaders that are specifically dedicated to product the way that we understand product as like somebody who prioritizes somebody who like translates the vision down to the work is is not as commonplace or not necessarily something I would assume. So and I want to draw this co- sort of like a little bit of a straw man kind of scale where it's like on one side you have the extreme kind of like visionary product manager who's all art and like fantasy and vision and doesn't actually understand the way that that practically becomes a technical project. And then on the other side, you have the sort of like, <laughs> whatever the the grouchy engineer people who are just like, just, you know, tell me what we need to build. You know, I like stop, stop messing with the, the I don't care about your sort of like creative auteur personality. You're getting in my way. Um, I know what needs to be done kind of like, and again, both of these are, are total straw men, but like, what were the big kind of like wake up calls for you in your career? Like what were the big learnings, the big takeaways that you have from both sides? I think in video games, you see that less because I think there's a, and some truth to this, like, you know, we're all play video games. We all have some intuition about what works and what doesn't. And so I think it's easy for everyone to think that them, that they are an expert to some degree, which may conflate this stuff a little bit. But I think that I've seen that work well when you have kind of a focused level of ownership of like, I own the experience of this and, you know, I own the implementation of this. And we can all have a a conversation about it, but a lot of times it's me learning about the thing. 
here at Elodie, I think we've leaned heavily on design to be kind of the like product vision. It's like a player has a problem. How are we going to solve that in our product? You know, I, I see that a lot in, you know, in video game terms. That's a lot of a design problem. I think the thing that can be hard is, and this is where I think I've had luck in, in, in the industry, is really being, I've often been the voice focusing on how, what is an increment of all the stuff that we can deliver that makes sense now, you know? Like, given the tools we have, what's something we can do now? Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that's a useful lens that kind of forces you to, like, try to deliver something. You know, I'm working closely with another person you guys may know, Scott Wolf, um, and he's the kind of, he's the scrum master for one of the teams we're working on. And he added a field in Jira that said, what's the demo? So it's like, mm. what's the demo for this? You know, and I think that's kind of the same idea. It's like, how, what is the way that we can express this thing that is, you know, visible? Um, and I think that if you, if someone's always asking that question, I think you get to a place where you're making a more cohesive set of product decisions and that influences like how we build the roadmap and how we can turn it into demoable increments and stuff like that. And I think that is something that as an engineer, I'm always pushing for because it's hard for me to call the work done until we can see it do something. So yeah, like if I'm right. doing a bunch of stuff, but it's all like back end and we're not really going to see it in the experience for another like two months because of all the other things. Now there's all this kind of unmanaged risk floating around around you know about is that thing actually does it work is it done does it meet the requirements um and so for me i'm always trying to push to a world where we can see it integrated we can see it together we can play it or touch it or feel it somehow um and i feel like the, a, a aspect of product management that's like really at the heart is that i could not possibly get more excited about what you're saying than that, that you just dropped that key piece of wisdom. Because like, I think when Ben and I are actually observing gaps, it is that gap. Cause it's like you have, we we're calling them the product person. Um, but I think they're actually more the business person. Like you said, the guy who understands all the customer flows for how tickets work and are distributed and change hands and all these things. Like he gets it, he knows he's the expert. And then on the other side, there's the the technical implementer, the engineer, but th they don't necessarily connect in the middle. I think we assume that they often connect in the middle, but that missing piece is the piece that you just called out, which is who takes the business requirement and then translates it into the the demo as as you articulated yeah. it, like the vertical slice. Like there there's a mastery there. There's an art yeah. there to actually translating that into a thing that will be built. And I think so more often than not, I think we assume that product is just the person who understands the domain. Um, and that's super valuable, but there's actually that craft. And that I, you're right, I think that is the thing that always astounded me about you is that I think you have a brain for that. I don't, I think there's very, it's very rare to find somebody who's uh, talented or gifted in that way. And I, and what's so funny is I honestly think that that one skill is often what determines a successful product. I think in very traditional agile, you often don't have this cause you have like this, I often kind of caricaturize that traditional agile product owner is like a salesperson. You have this like yeah. salesperson who's thinking very like outcome oriented. And if that's 
the thing 100% driving like your priorities and your roadmap, then you often miss, I think, those incremental opportunities to at least prove to yourself. You may not be proving it to customers, but you're at least proving to yourself that the thing you're building is real. Yeah, I think the, you know, if we were to boil this down to like a hyper simplistic anecdote, it's like you want this person to be or you want the person that can take this gigantic thing that the team is like, oh, crap, we have to figure out how to solve this in the next 90 days. But this thing we have, as we understand it, is six months of work. Where's the person that can look at that and slice that thing up and and take a slice of it that does fit into the 90 days that's over its sort of respective amount of value. Yeah. That like, yes. ca- what's the biggest chunk of value in the smallest piece there, basically? And that I that is a really like masterful skill set. I feel like. And it's cross disciplinary. It's it's yeah. it's not one yeah. thing. You know, art. Yeah. It's in a video game context, and in it, and I think an area where video games have more complexity than a lot of enterprise software oh, yeah. is in this area because you know artists are going to want to be able to prove their aspects. And designs has things that they're going to want to prove, and engineering has things they're going to want to prove, and and proving all those things at once, and and making that make any kind of sense experientially is hard. And I think, uh, but that's a lens to look at it through. It's like, what are we proving with this? Um, how many foundational proofs can we generate with this? Uh, and I think if teams take that lens, they'll probably build begin building more kind of to experiential increments versus like just a list of features, you know? There's a way in which every discipline may be able to solve the same problem, right? Like let's let's say there's a part of the map and you want players to know that like this part of the map is important. And if I ask an audio uh, producer, an audio engineer, audio producer to do that, they're like, oh, okay, I'll like have a sound that plays as they get closer. And if I ask a, a... a environmental artist to do that. They're like, I'm going to make the shift the contrast in the background. I'm going to like adjust the colors. We're going to have it become um, brighter, more obvious. If I ask a UX person to do that, it might be like, and and you can keep going down and everybody has like their way of solving that problem. Um, And it's interesting because when you hand that problem into the cross-disciplinary team, it's about picking a solution that works for wherever you're at. Um, without making sure, without getting to a point where like everybody all together puts their solutions, because that might be complete overkill, yes, um, or something like that. And and the the thing that's coming up for me, and you know, I'm a nerd, but my favorite agile principle, yes, I have one. Uh, I think it's the only one I have memorized actually. But it's um, simplicity, the art of maximizing the work not done, is essential. And I think like that's so core to what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's like how do I do you know, the, the classic thing, how do I do 20% of the work to get 80% of the value and then figure out if I even need to go any further? One thing I've noticed to that, uh, that may, that I actually noticed something that I, we haven't solved, so I don't know the answer to this, but it's something I've noticed is it's easy for that to get watered down. So imagine you're a one man development team or one woman development team. You're on steam, you're making your game solo. I mean, you make those decisions automatically. Mm-hmm. Like you're automatically like optimizing that like in your head because you're the one doing everything. And I think in a larger team or larger organization, it's easy to water that down to the point where you're not optimizing it at all. Mm-hmm. And so 
that you're not sitting there, you know, cross-disciplinary team-wise and saying, okay, here's the experiential goal. What are the fewest number of things we can do to get there? How can we prove this? And let's have a minimal kind of optimizing conversation about that. You know, even in our own work over here, I, I know that we don't do that enough. You know, it's it's so funny that you mentioned that. one. This is a shockingly common thing Ben and I have run into um, working with game companies is the situation where, and, and again, it's it's a cascade of things that lead you to this place you're describing, where it's like the classic one is we got excited. We decided we were going to build a game. We had $20 million. We hired 40 artists and we have six engineers. And the reason that that happened wasn't because we were like, well, artists are clearly more important. It was just because artists were easier to hire at that time and engineers were hard to hire. So we just ended up with this lopsided thing. And now we've got these three art directors who are like, I've got, the engineers are obviously bogged down, uh, you know, in this ratio, pretty bad, um, which happens all the time in game development, right? And so now you've got 20 artists who are idle. It's like, what do you do? Like, do I want to be the art director that's in charge of 20 artists who are idle? Like, you actually see these things become motivations yep. where it's like, I've got to keep these people working. And it may not even be because, like, some VP somewhere is saying, you better be working hard. It could be just, I don't want these people to quit because yeah, they're Yeah, I don't bored. know what they would do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's going to be boring. And but, so, yeah. and but we are going to need them eight months from now or a year from now. So it's like you get these conundrums. And what, But what's ironic is the engineers are are behind already because of all this important work they need to do. But the artists creating a bunch of art that we're not going to use for a long time stresses the engineers even further <laughs> and, and clogs up our system. And so we, we you see these problems all the time in game development, very much to your point. And I think so. I think it also kind of can water down without you even meaning it to happen, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I think that I think big company, it's funny, you know, I've been at a big company and you guys have too. It's like, mm -hmm. I think big companies look kind of longingly at small companies and their ability to like make these kind of decisions, you know, make like minimal and optimized decisions. You know, I think about like I played Hades. Was that last year or the year before? I don't remember, but I played it. It was great on Steam. You know, it's a 20 person team and it's great. Great game. Polished, looks great. Feel, everything feels good. And it's because they made such smart choices about the scope. Like they did this beautiful thing where they do right. animated 2D illustrations for all the narrative. So you go and interact with a narrative thing and an animated, you know, almost full screen kind of cut out 2D animation comes up and it looks beautiful and it has sound and it, it really is stylized and so you feel it. But that's a relatively cheap way to implement that thing, you know? And they made that decision you know, upfront probably, or, you know, early in the process to say, look, we're not going to do this as animated characters talking to each other or whatever. We're going to do this thing that's going to feel good and be stylized, but is a minimally viable thing. And we're going to put the, the effort somewhere else. And therefore we can probably have two illustrators for the whole project, you know, and it's like that kind of, that kind of thinking is really intelligent. And you just look at, you know, I think I, I, I know big companies look at these kind of decisions and they're like, man, I wish we could do that, you know, <laughs> but we're not, here's our 500 person team making full animations, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, I, I actually think too that the, what you're pointing to, there's constraints, right? They have different constraints and the big companies, I think, take a lot of pride sometimes and perhaps inappropriately in saying, ha ha, we've removed all the constraints. 
Yeah. Um, and there's a real danger in that because, you know, and you talk to anybody who knows about creative leadership and they'll always say like, you have to have constraints in there, right? Constraints actually, assuming they're not insane, they will drive creativity in a positive direction. Because maybe what happened is, yeah, we wanted 3D models talking to each other in our game, but we also knew that those, you know, the narrative events were not as important as everything else we were doing. And so we just chose to like have something placeholder while we were building this out. And then later on, we were like, if we've got time, we'll do we'll do a more complete model. And if we don't, we'll find another solution. And it turned out that the solution we picked was like, hey, let's throw this together. Maybe that happened early in development. Maybe it happened later. It, it, but it doesn't matter because, to your point, the game was good. Yeah, and they, and they knew and they were able to say, and I think this is the key, is they were able to kind of say with confidence, like, how, what does this need to be? Yeah, and I think that's a thing that's it's a hard question to answer, and it's hard for to people for know to, to know the answer. Like, how good does the art need to be? How good does the feeling of this, the responsiveness, need to be? I mean, these are hard questions to answer, but I think deeply knowing the answer to those questions helps you build those constraints. And when you build those constraints, you can get a better product, more cohesive product for sure, and probably a cheaper product. You know, you can probably optimize around yes. what it needs to be versus what can you do. Uh, and it's a, a lot of times I think. You know, we go for what can we do versus what does it need to be? I think that one is there's almost a fear where um, if you like drew a, you know, a bunch of bars for all the different parts of your your product, let's say, like, how good is the art? How good is the design? Whatever you could say, well, we want this, you know, we want the design bar to be really good or whatever. But we don't we're not worried about the the, the narrative, the cutscenes, Right. And I think we're so scared of being close to the just good enough line so often that we're like, you know what, let's just bring all the bars up. Yeah. And then you get caught in that world where, you know, the like the last 10% or the last 20% of polish is actually so much more time consuming. Yeah. Um, it's it's like immensely harder. Whereas if you just were able to say, if you were able to risk being not good enough, whatever that means in some of these areas by, by trying to like hit that and just be like, hey, you know what, this is enough. And if it's not, we'll find out in iterations and play testing and other things, we'll find out it's not and we can always then raise the bar. Um, but I, I do feel like in the large companies, exactly what you said, it's more, I don't wanna be anywhere near that line because if I'm anywhere near that line, someone may call my product low quality for some really weird reason. Oh man, this, this, this whole topic is, it's one of the most, I think, beautiful, juicy topics in game development right now, which is, I, I think I will just generically refer to it as quality and what does quality mean? Um, like that's a, a the whole separate podcast actually that we need to do uh, sometime coming up here. Cause like I have, I have like so many strong opinions on that. Like my, I, I it was such a cheeky thought, but when you were like, well, how good does the art need to be? My knee jerk response was like, I'll tell you one thing. It's not as good as my artists think it needs to be. <laughs> and it's just like, and I know that that sounds so mean, but it is like a real problem that I always had as a game producer. Producer, you know what I mean? Was like yeah. not and, and 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 by the way, I I actually mean that in a very complimentary way to them. I'm like, that's how talented you are. Like, I think I think you're actually ahead of our players the majority of time. A majority. You're of supposed time. to be. You're yeah. supposed to be. Yeah, and we're and we can spin the effort. It's not like I think the engineering version of this thing is we we're talking about the Unreal and stuff. You know, one of the things I think about on our own project is I can really only afford to do a literal handful of things 
from scratch. So if, if mm-hmm. we're gonna if if we said okay from scratch we need to redo pathfinding, that's like one thing that uses one of my like handful of of things and that and it takes it up. I, I will not be able to use it on something else. So like, here's here's your dollar. Yeah. I have four more. Exactly. <laughs> and I don't have many. So we're gonna have to pick real careful which things we use that on. Uh, and most things we won't be able to, like the, the vast majority of things we will not be able to use that on. Just because mm-hmm. it's the budget, right? And so I think the same thing applies to art and to everything else. It's like I get one or a handful of like super awesome things. So what's it going to be? If I'm making Horizon, the, you know, Horizon Forbidden West, Aloy is going to be the thing, right? I'm going to make Aloy amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to make the characters that Aloy talks to all the time very good. You know, I'm going to make some other things less good. You know, it's like you, I think you have to kind of prioritize in a hierarchical fashion like this. And, um, you know, it's not about good, I guess. It's just like how much time are we going to spend on this, you know? Yeah. Well, it, I think they're, they're like the phrase I remember. Um, I remember being told, like, good enough isn't good enough. And I was like, no, that's like that's logically incorrect. <laughs> that's <the> point. Yeah. <laughs> but but I knew what they were saying. I knew that if if they they felt as if. I created something that was merely good enough, then I have failed uh, to the point Aaron made. Um, you know, it's like they want to go further. They want to do more. And that's a good thing. And I ended up rephrasing it with that team. I would say, okay, what's awesome enough, right? And they were more okay with that um, because, it, and again, it's just like a subtle little thing, yeah. but it was, it helped them realize like there is a line that we need to get above and there's another line that we don't need to actually meet that's like perfection. And actually it's ridiculous to ever try to meet it. Um, so let's get above the awesome enough line and then let's move on to the next thing. Yeah, and a game like Hades, I think has achieved a very special combination of those decisions. So it's an amazing game, you know? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that any one of those things is the best it's ever gonna be in the world. It's the confluence of those decisions that are cohesively coming together that make it good. Um, and this goes back to your point about product management. I think this is there is there is something to do here. There is a, a decision-making framework to have, which is what is good enough, like actually good enough for what we're trying to do, and how do we know that, and how are we going to set that bar and how do we articulate the vision to all the different disciplines so they know it or or maybe it's not maybe we we work with the disciplines to articulate it like for art let's develop an answer for that um yeah but what is that thing what is the artifact at the end of that development look like and how do we use it as a tool on our team i think those are some things that are useful i don't see that happening in that many projects you know Hmm. Let's let's dig more into the engineering side of this because we've yeah. talked uh, we've talked quite a bit about things like quality and product thinking and stuff like that and it's really really good stuff. But I'm actually also interested because one of the things I realized um, I I had the privilege of working most of the time with engineers um, and I learned probably more about technology just through diffusion over those years than I ever thought I would have. And like you really do start to understand that um, that engineering is complex in many ways, not just technically and not not just fingers on keyboard writing code. Um, and yet I still see a lot of, I think, on the sort of production side or leadership side, oversimplification. I would v- just say it is the oversimplification of like what that involves. Mm. And actually, I think when that's at its worst, 
I think what ends up happening is a lot of engineers end up almost having to become like mini product leaders because <laughs> they have to figure out these questions that weren't necessarily answered. But I'm, I'm curious, like what, what's your take on that side of things? Like, what do you think people miss about engineering and the complexity of engineering and how that's evolving and game development? Yeah, it's a good question. I would say, you know, often there are depend, you know, engineering is you're building kind of a stack of things, right? So there's things at the bottom of the stack that no one knows what they do and, you know, dot, dot, dot. And there's like <laughs> the game that you play and the characters you interact with or the tools you use or whatever. And that middle layer of stuff, it's hard for, it's just hard for folks to understand the details of it. And I don't think they necessarily have to. Um, if anything, I would say it's probably a job for engineering leaders to produce understandable information on that so that the rest of the organization can know what's going on or can see like, hey, because of this minor thing in the game, that's actually a major thing. Like we've overhauled right. the entire rendering layer. So the fact that it looks the same is amazing, right? It's like, oh, great. You know, it's like, it, it's, it's worth, if, if all you know is like some graphics guys have been working in the corner for a year and it looks the same, like, what are they doing? Like, that's not, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not, it's not the right lens, you know? And so I think it's important for engineering leaders to be kind of the hype person, you know, to be like, Hey, let me just let you know that these are the problems we have with the graphics layer. And this is why it's not going to scale. And here's what we've had to do in the corner. And this guy's over here, working crazy hours for a year and it's almost going to come to fruition and our goal is that we, we do a side-by-side -side comparison we can hit the same bar in these cases and it sets us up for all this new stuff we're trying to do you know oh, like and, oh by the way we wiped out 40 percent of our bugs yeah yeah or we've increased performance or whatever it is right and i think like yeah somebody's got to be the person to be this person it's probably the engineering leaders and so you know i would say from a production standpoint like we should get engineering. We should ask engineering leaders to do that. We should create forums for for them where there's a place where that can happen. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we we have that stuff more visible. Yeah. Why doesn't that happen though? Why why? Because what, what you're describing sounds so cool. Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think one is probably a fault of engineering. You know, and I've done this myself too. I probably don't do the thing I'm describing enough even now, but. It's easy to get focused, bogged down on the work and focus on what you're doing versus like communicating it. And to your point, I guess every engineer could do that, but it's hard. It's honestly hard for people, you know, and it depends on the kind of person you are, but not everyone's going to be good at that skill. Mm -hmm. And so you need someone who's, you know, who will be that person. Uh, an engineering leader is probably a good person who can both understand what that work is, but also be in the meetings and in the forums and probably have a voice that can communicate it to the organization. I would say, you know, I mean, you guys obviously know this a lot because it's cr it's critical to process, but you have to have a forum for the conversations to have the conversations a lot of time. Yeah. And so I think that's a, a piece as well. It's like, you know, how are we getting disciplines to show the cool stuff that they're working on and like, you know, that question we asked, what's the demo? Well, it, it can be hard. Like if you said, hey, what's the demo? The default answer from some engineers would be like, there's no way I can demo this. It's like, well, mm. it's not true. Like you could demo. What could you demo? How do you know it works? Well, I look at this graph. Okay, that's a demo. What's the graph mean? Well, it means this. Okay, let's show that to the company. 
and explain it. Um, and so I think it's it's important to kind of like pull that to some yeah. to some degree. And I think from a lot of engineers, it's 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 not the obvious thing to do. I think a lot of engineers are like no one cares about this. Yeah, you know it's it's so interesting because I I love your thought there about creating a forum. And if there's like a specific piece of advice for producers out there. Um, and I don't think you have to be super technical to do this as long as you're present enough to just listen. Like I, I, I'm I'm thinking when I was a wee lad, actually, back in the old days on the store team at, at Riot, I just sitting in the pit and listening to the engineers talking about what they were struggling with, I kept hearing certain phrases and words coming up over and over again associated with frustration. And like there was this one point, I, I, I might not remember it correctly, but there was something called the store controller. I was like, this is frustrating. Like when this topic comes up, it's frustrating. And I, so I did this thing where I grabbed all the engineers and I was like, hey guys, let's just go out to lunch and talk about this. And so I, I was like, what are the 10 most painful things that you've had to do? And like store controller was in like eight out of 10. And I'm like, so it's like now we're creating that translation yeah, layer yeah. again, where they're just like, before they were just like, please let us redo the store controller. And the product manager's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, Why yeah, is that yeah. important? And they're like, it sucks. The code sucks. And it's like, that isn't really something I can take to my boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And so when we started to actually go like, oh, you guys are actually like wading through molasses. Like when you do these store controller features, it literally takes you eight times as long to do to do the work. Oh, wow there's a huge amount of value on the table right here. Like if we can just remove that as a factor, we can we could literally just increase your overall speed by two or three X. And like, I think oftentimes like producers are so advocating on the creative side, like you said, those very top layers that they're not thinking about like that kind of value yeah. actually. Yeah. And I think that kind yeah. of value back to what we were talking about earlier is massive, you know what I mean? Like build you're building clean, right? So yeah, create that forum, I feel like, for your engineering team. You know, this is probably too, I mean, maybe it's right for your guys' podcast here, which is, you know, this is a lean philosophy, right? We talk mm -hmm. about value stream analysis and that kind of stuff. Like, this is what it is. You know, you sit down and, well, how do we create, okay, you got, what does your team do? You make backend services to power, you know, whatever. How, how does it work? Like, what's the value stream of that? And, you know, what do you have to do to get that work in there? And yeah. what are some of the big problems that exist? You know, it's like, I think understanding that value stream is important. A lot of times it's engineering leaders that by default understand that. Um, but I think you're right. Like the organization as a whole should try to understand that or at least production because so and I think video games are an area where it's very easy for that to be very bad. Right. <laughs> I mean, you guys have seen probably the crazy stuff, but it's it's very easy for the workflows and just for the value stream to be really bad for things. Yeah. Um, on our project recently, I got a complaint from a designer that's like, hey, I'm having trouble with this UI, this like debug UI, which uh, you add experience to. And it's really causing us pain because you can only type up to a number up to a thousand in the box. And I was like, what's the deal? He's like, well, we have to, because of this other bug, we have to enter all the levels to test them at level 20. And, and I have to add a thousand experience at a time. And so I have to click the button 142 times in order to get there. And I'm like, what, what are you doing? You know? And so this is like great, like value stream conversation. It's like, what do you guys actually do? You know? And then let's build that. And so some engineer yeah. doesn't fix it. Now the engineer is not fixing the problem that they asked for. They're just making a thing that's like set level to, to whatever. And that, circumvents the whole problem and it's like that 
is a quick and easy thing for an engineer to do that someone isn't thinking about. So they're like rolling the boulder up the hill, you know? Guy's got his arm suspended in a cast <laughs> with like severe carpal tunnel. He's yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Using his right. nose to push the button. Like, <laughs> it's when when you're talking about this, and I I worked a decent amount. Actually, probably pretty equally between engineering teams and more art and design heavy teams. And one of the things that's always struck me is when we're talking about engineering, it's almost it's hard to get everybody to understand why it matters. And the opposite is true for art. It's hard to get people to understand why it doesn't matter. Yeah as an artist, right? Sometimes you're just like, don't worry about that. Like, and people yeah. are like, no, how can I not worry about it? I can see it and I have opinions. And you're just like, I, it's not what I'm, I need feedback on this other thing. I'm working on this other thing. Like that, don't worry, we'll get to that. Where for an engineer, it's like, as you said, there's, I specialized in networking way back when I got a computer and systems engineering degree. And I remember at that point, sort of there's this thing started breaking open in my head, which is the entire digital world we live on is just, sets of overly complicated code bases uh, from the outside that nobody remembers who wrote, that are all just interacting with each other, hopefully in ways that somehow hold together. And it's so hard for engineers to get people to care about any of what's under there. Because all I care about is like, hey, can I play the game? Is the game fun? Does it work? I used to work with with an engineering leader at Riot, and his phrase was, infrastructure, the definition of infrastructure is the layer below the thing you care about. And you're like, cool. <laughs> it rings true, yeah. you know? Because yes, if you talk yes. to server guys, they think infrastructure is the network. And if you talk to software guys, they think infrastructure is the server. <laughs> and if you talk to, you know, game designers, they think infrastructure is the, you know, the, the tools are using or whatever it is, right? So it's like the layer below the thing you care about. And I think that to your point, the reality is there's a lot of layers between the you know everything right and it's important to understand that value stream like what do we what what of this stuff that we actually use and care about what's differentiating in our product you know and i think like this kind of goes back to what i was saying in the beginning but you know as a small company we're able to rely on a lot of third parties for stuff which does create some risk like what if they go down or what if they have these problems but it also right. creates opportunities because many of those things sit below the layer that we care about. You know, we're trying to make a game experience, mm-hmm. so we're not trying to differentiate on chat servers. So it's like, cool, I'll buy chat servers, you know, or I'll buy a chat service, ideally, that someone is is also running for me. Right. I actually would like to keep going and chat a little bit about scale. I don't want to refer to scale too generically, but there are like a couple, there's, because there's so many things we could talk about on that topic. I think one of the things that's interesting there is when you start talking about running like a large global live service and everything that that implicates. I mean, I think one of the most fascinating things I, uh, or fascinating buckets of things I learned at Riot around technology was just what the implications are when you start having like network infrastructure throughout the entire globe and like what that actually requires and like the human infrastructure of that and and all all of that is just it's crazy but i'm also interested in in like you know what it looks like to build at that kind of scale and how that affects decisions and trade-offs and things like that and i'm i know you you worked at very large scale so it's like what what things come up from a leadership perspective when you think about the skills that you need to develop? And this is not something I've always done well. So I feel it's one of the cases where I think the the answer is easy and doing the answer is hard. So, <laughs> and this probably is true for a lot of things, right? I think the easy answer on scaling from an organizational standpoint is 
to hire people that you can actually entrust the problem to and then entrust the problem to them to own it. Because then you can scale really high, right? Like, like imagine you hired the perfect person for everything that was just knew 10 times about it, uh, as much about it as you did. And so they're just like, here's what I'm going to do. And it's obviously right. So you did that for everything. I mean, all you're doing is hiring and interviewing those people. You're bringing them on, you're onboarding them, you're connecting them together. I mean, that's a manageable role at any scale. And so I think that's the ideal. So first of all, I think understanding that that's the ideal is hard because a lot of people want to, you know, not have that be the ideal. Um, they they want to do it. There was an interesting, there was a guy at Riot who, who ran a teaching course about leadership, like military leadership style. And he had an interesting exercise in there that I totally fell for the trap on, but I, I think it's, it's relevant to this. So his exercise was like, he had this like felt board where you mm -hmm. put all these tanks and stuff. And it was like a game where you're going to like move the tanks and do this kind of battle scenario. And it's kind of a D and D like he knows what's going to happen. He'll just keep throwing wrenches at you. Right. Anyway, you have a team of let's say four or five people on each team and then they're set up. So like one guy's a general and the next guy, you know, da, 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 all the way to the person who's driving the tank. And the way you set the exercise up is like, you guys, your team can talk. And then after, you know, 30 seconds, the general is going to have to go away. And then after another 30 seconds, the next guy is going to have to go away. And then, and in the middle of those, he's going to keep adding information. So like you talk about it as a general with them and then he leave and he adds a new piece of information and dot, dot, dot. And then finally the end, the tank driver like says, okay, move forward two notches. That's like the final move. Okay. So anyway, this whole thing is interesting because the right answer is like, do nothing because a tank driver, both, Hey, none of you guys have ever played this game. So you don't have any idea who, who is like, no one's good at this game. No one's ever played this game before. And the tank driver has all the information by the design of the game and no one else does. So it's like the, the right answer is like, don't do anything and just skip, skip, skip. And the tank driver just decides what to do. But no one does that, right? So it's like, you know, like everyone's like, well, I'm the general, so you've got to do this. It's like, you don't know. <laughs> you know, you don't know. It, in fact, the whole game is designed as an exercise of like, you don't know. It's You're arbitrarily the general. You've never played this game and you, you don't have any of the information because I'm going to make stuff up after the fact. And even in that scenario, people are like, like me, I did this. I fell into the trap where I'm like, I'm the general. You should do this. And it's like, it, it's just, it's it's like a characterization of like the real world, you know? Um, I love that. Yeah. So it's like we, we often tell, uh, we often talk about the transition from mid-level management to senior leadership is a transition that is mostly characterized by letting go. Uh, actually, uh, that's really interesting. I love that little story you just told because it, it, it is the case. It's like, I, even if you have nothing to add, you like, you can't not add something cause you're the general. What would it look like if the general had nothing to add? What's he, what is it that, what would you say you do here? Exactly. Yeah. Mr. General. And it breaks is, down all the pretenses. Cause you're like, you're thinking, you know, at least in the real world, you can be like, well, I have 20 years of experience, you know, in this, like you've never, none of you have ever even seen this game. So no one has this, this was <laughs> this was hilarious because so I'm I'm a uh, I did that class. He made me the general, and I think he made me the general because I am actually trained in tank and Humvee warfare. Good, good. And and I'm not kidding, man. I was like exactly where you were as that exercise was going on. I'd be like, okay, I know I can't tell you what to do in the local context, so I was just like, here's the big picture of what we're trying to do, right? Like, here's what. 
here's where I want us to try to end up. And then I would walk away and I'd be like, and then this is what I'm expecting, right? And I'm not kidding. Then I'd like come back in and the tank would have moved like two notches in like the exact opposite direction of whatever my goal was. And I just remember being like, <gasps> like what is going on? Like, why is this happening? And the guy was like, well, and you know, there was stuff that happened and, and it was, it was so, you're, you're spot on. It was so frustrating in that moment to be like, why are you going over there? Like, what's over there? Did you even listen to me? I'm the general. Like, and and it was all, yeah, it was, anyway, it's, this is it's, the best. It's, a, it's a brilliant exercise. I love it. Yeah, and it's the best in reflection, too. You know, you realize, like, hey, in reality, if I hire the right people and I have the right people, which is not always the case. I mean, that's something to work on. It's hard, and that's hard, really hard to do. So, asterisk all over. But, like, that being the goal, really just doing that is the main objective because what you want to get to is a place where you have the right people on the ground making decisions that they could just make them, you know, and they know all the pieces of information required to make them. And they know a lot more about it because that's what they do every day. You know, like they're, they're sitting there with designers every single day talking to them. So when designers talk about what their problems are, they already know what their problems are. They do the design workflows with them. They taught them how to do that, right? So if you're like, hey, what can we improve by the design workflows? You know, let's say it's an engineer. Those engineers should have the best information about it. And I think, you know, this goes back to the agile philosophy, which is like, it's about conversations and people versus like building a bunch of documentation and process to solve that stuff. And it's like, if you yeah. have the people in the right place, the right people, you don't need a documentation or, or process for some of these things. You just need the right people. And it's night and day when you go from having the right, from not having the right people to having them. Like all your problems yes. just go away, right, you know? Right. Well, there's, and there's a, it's a, there's two reasons I think it goes away as well. It's not just that now I have the right people. It's also, and this one is weird, but it's, I trust these people now. Yeah. And what's interesting is sometimes you have no reason to trust them other than you think they're the right people. Yeah. And there's the weird, uh, the the Rosenthal effect or the Pygmalion effect, which is simply by trusting them, you are they can more become likely the, they to can become the right people. Yeah. They, yeah, yeah. they are more likely to be the right people. But when, yeah, when I start as the general and I yell at the guy because he took the tank in the wrong direction or whatever, when I missed tons of context between his choice and, and why, you know, what I knew, um, I just go like, I want to fire the tank driver, right? Like, that's what I want to do. I want to get rid of the tank driver. Or I want to tell him exactly what he has to do, regardless of anything that happens. Um, and that might be literally, I just like, if he does it, he might just drive over a mine that he knows about. But he's like, well, I don't have any choice. I guess yeah. I have to yeah, drive yeah, over yeah. the mine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this and exercise you see that in organizations. Sucks. You see yeah. that in organizations, right? Like you, you see people that have that mentality on teams. Well, mm -hmm. we can't change this. Why are you doing it this way? We got, we have to do it this way. You know? And that's the opposite, right? That's that's where you say, we don't have decision-making autonomy at the right level. And so we're just making, we're just going with the decisions we've already got and changing them is extremely difficult. So I'm just going with it. And I think, you know, that creates a ton of inefficiency. It's, and honestly, I think that's a, it's not 100% avoidable. There's going to be some of that. If your organization gets bigger, there's going to be some. But yeah. this is like that thing adding up cumulatively is what makes large organizations less flexible than small ones because decision-making is less flexible. 
So I, you, you were at Riot and working on League and other things, and you went from a small company to a very large company. And now you're back in a smaller company that has the, the dream, the hope, the goal of being a very large, successful company. What are you doing in that shift back to the, to the startup to try to set yourself up for a world where you can be successful now and you'll be successful once scale occurs? You know, at Riot, we would kind of, we had a lot of tribal knowledge. You know, so you so you end up like one of the reasons I personally was successful is because I had been there for a long time, so I had a lot of tribal knowledge. So I could go onto different teams and like know a lot of people, and I know a lot of the weird stuff about their product space and their technology space. Uh, it's just a lot of tribal knowledge, and that's not the greatest way to build your organization. I think build your organization through managing your knowledge, recording it, indexing it, making it accessible to other people, making it searchable. Um, and, there, and I think remote work actually helps with this because remote work t- trends us towards writing things down versus talking about them informally mm. and things like that. And that makes a, that can create knowledge that can be learned from in the future. And I think those are important practices to help you kind of keep your experience because that's something you're building. That's a proprietary thing that you're building as an organization is you're building your knowledge. So how do you – I mean that's – and that could be more valuable than even your product. Like I mentioned the team that worked on Hades. I mean, that was not their first game. They've done several other games and that game sits on top of the learning from those other projects. So, you know, in some ways, some of the other projects are maybe less valuable than the learning they got from them to make the new game. And so I think Mm -hmm. like that is not to be underestimated. I think it's important for organizations to think about how they manage their knowledge and keep it. Like a new person comes on, you're like, check out the documentation for this thing. We aren't sure what we're building, or we don't, we're not sure what we built. Check it out. You know, I'm I'm curious, like when, because we've talked a lot about these sort of challenges and solutions around scale, and uh, there's been some really interesting organizational stuff related stuff on the technology side specifically. What are some of the challenges that you see come up there with scale? The key idea in technology for scale is to build for change so you know know that there's going to be change and build embracing the fact that there's going to be change and there's probably an art form to this or like some experience to this which is knowing what what are the few critical things that you actually need to think about now and most of it you don't need to think about now you know like most of the stuff you can kick the can down the road on and there's a few things that probably matter like how you store data I would say is an is a thing that you have to decide early on because you're going to store some data and it's a decision that will entrench you into a direction. And so it's important to decide that well up front. Um, example, I played Diablo Immortal recently. Cool game. I was not happy to learn that there are shards, like server shards in that game. And there's a bunch of them, you know, maybe over 50. And all your information is locked to the shard and you play with people on that shard. So if, like, let's say the three of us are playing, random chance has it that we're not on the same shard. So our characters are not on the same shard. Like we can't play together necessarily. I have to start a oh, new wow. character on your shard. Like this is bad, right? And this is obviously the kind of entrenched decision you get, or, you know, from a from like a how we store data early on thing. You know, players were like, I didn't realize this from the beta. Well, of course, the beta only had a few players. You didn't have all these shards. 
Like Facebook doesn't work that way, and it has a lot more users than Diablo Immortal has. And so it's not like in, inherently has to be that way, but that's a decision that was probably made early on that kind of got them entrenched there. And so I would say that's the kind of thing that's probably something you do have to think about up front. But for every one of those, there's a million other things that you don't have to think about now. And I think at least as a small company, this is one of the key lessons is we do not have to solve all this stuff today. We're not, we do not have to build this the same way we build it at Riot today because we don't have to launch it to 100 million players on launch day you know mm -hmm. and if we get there we get there and that's great and we can solve those problems and we can have a bigger team to solve them bigger team mm -hmm. us in the future will be able to solve problems easier than small team us today you know yeah there's there it it comes back to me to this i feel like this conversation that's just round and round and round in both engineering probably in enterprise and in games which is how much do we architect out up front Right? How many, we were talking about all those layers earlier, how many of those layers do I try to figure out before I even have a playable product? If any, right? Yeah, this may be a little high level, or probably not, but something to think about is like, it doesn't have to be adversarial. These are partnerships, right? So if you're a startup or any company, partnerships are a good thing, not a bad thing. And I think that good partnerships are win-win. Right, like I'm creating value for the other customer by by or their product by a buying their product and b kind of evangelizing their product and showing people how it works and and giving them feedback if it's not good like that's a good customer and then you know they're understanding my needs and they're building a product that I need like this is a good reciprocal relationship they're making a market differentiator of being good at that one thing and I'm making my product which is what I want to be doing you want to be building partnerships for things with experts that really are good at them. But in many other areas, I've found a partnership that is something that makes it easy for me to not focus on an area. Because what are we, what are, what is the meat of what we're focusing on? You know, and I think that goes back to like, what is, what is our product really? Like what differentiates? What is, what makes it good enough in these other areas? And what's the thing that actually has to shine in? And if we have that really well, if we have a good understanding of that, and we've really well defined that vision, then it's easy for me as an engineering leader to say, yeah, that's not one of those things we care about, and that's not one of those things we care about. Let me see if I can find great partners to do those things. Yeah, and I loved uh, that we talked about building clean too. There's such a constant controversy and debate around that that makes people say things like, well, I think it's maybe too early to build tools for this or too early to do things like writing unit tests or whatever it is. My experience shows me that it is like go slow a bit to go very fast later. And I think one of the things no one talks about is that once you get that, you lock in that efficiency increase, that iteration speed increase, like you get that forever now. Like yeah. that's net, that you, it's, it's in place. And so what I've actually seen teams, I, I can think of a specific example on a very big project. Um, some of your uh, lovely engineers actually worked on this where they were adamant about building the tool set and the testing up front to be able to iterate quickly. And um, of course, you know, many people in leadership were like, well, we know what we need to do. We just need to build it, not waste any time. Of course they were wrong. We did not know what we wanted to build, but they held their ground and they were slower. In the first 90 days, they were significantly slower than any other than any of the other teams. And then after that 90 days, they just like rocketed past every single other of the teams and they never, none of the other teams were ever able to keep up after that. Jonathan, thanks for 
joining us today. I was like enraptured the entire time we were talking. I like completely lost track of time, which is always a good sign. Thank you so much for your time. And it's just always a pleasure to chat with you and hear your thoughts on stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate this. Thanks for listening to Building Better Games with Aaron and Ben. If you have comments, questions, or would like to work with Ben and Aaron, shoot an email to info at valarinconsulting.com. That's info at V-A-L-A-R-I-N consulting.com. Please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Valarin Inc. We'll catch you next time.